I get asked often how I sold more than a million copies of The Coaching Habit. And I wish I had a better answer because then I'd use it to sell a million copies each of my other books. And of course, there is no singular answer. It's a combination of a number of things going well, plus a healthy dose of, I don't know, magic fairy dust, aka the right things at the right time, getting lift off and somehow escaping gravity. Now, for the coaching habit, one of the things that we got right, something that other people often get wrong, is the design of the book itself. Because of my relationship with Page Two, my publisher, I was able to push for creating a reading experience through the design that felt lighter and accessible and or not intimidating. So many books feel heavy, a wall of text. And I wanted a book that when you flick through it, you went, yeah, yeah, I could read this. Now, this wasn't just something that occurred to me in the moment. On my shelves, I've actually got lots of books that I think have done a great job with design. Pretty much anything from the publisher, Phaidon, that's P-H-A-I-D-O-N, Austin Clearan, of course, who Steal Like an Artist trilogy is gorgeous, some of Tom Peters' later works, he really played with the design of what a business book could be, and Stefan Boucher as well, and more on him in a moment. Whatever you're working on, let's forget the content for a moment. What's the experience that you're creating? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Stefan Boucher likes designing books and he likes questions. I mean, I found him through his wonderful book, 344 Questions, the creative person's do-it-yourself guide to insight, survival, and artistic fulfillment. So <laughs> I know we're going to get along. He's a graphic designer and illustrator with an illustrious career so far. Illustrious, that's probably a pun. Um, if you happen to pick up the soundtrack to the first Matrix movie, well, you've seen his artwork on the cover. And he created typography for films like The Fall, Mortals, and Mirror Mirror. And Stefan's current work is really no less interesting. He live streams his design chops. I have a, an illustration series called The Daily Monster. So I'm a, I'm a creative, not a layabout, a getabout, a creative scallywag. I think I probably need to hire him to design the Advice Monster series. Now, if you're interested in his latest monstrous live stream, well, you'll find that at dailymonster.inc, I-N-K. Now, the seeds for Stefan's interest in design were planted early and easy enough to see in retrospect. My dad got me some comic books. And they were Disney comics, and they were printed on uncoated stock on that really ratty, sort of easily yellowed paper. Love it when somebody's journey starts with the books they were giving. Books, they're awesome. Um, I've actually just rescued some of my favorites from the family home. I mean, the Captain Pugwash series, classics of their time. But for my books, my childhood books, well, I was caught up in the story and the heroics of those books. But Stefan's attention was snagged by something else. What I noticed is that there were black areas that were colored in, but the color was spilling over onto the black. And it took me 20 years to figure out that that's called trapping. But that was the first time where I thought, well, wait a second, that's, this is an artifact. So I noticed it was the first time that I sort of pulled back and noticed that it's an artifact. I love how the word artifact is made up of both art 
a fact. I mean, its technical meaning is an object made by a human being. It's typically an item of cultural or historical interest. So what we're saying here, in other words, Stefan realized that a human made the comic book, a designer. I mean, that's obvious enough when you say it out loud, but mostly we miss our life is shaped by design, both good and bad. The brain wants to save energy, so it doesn't really think about things much. It's like, yeah, pretty sure this is a road, pretty sure this is a tree, we know what to do. Mm-hmm. And what the designer's eye is in that context is that it went, all oh, right, it's a comic book, I'm supposed to read these panels and I'm supposed to see what the characters are doing. But part of my brain, let's call it a designer brain, pulled back and was like, oh, wait a second. There's the story level, there's the visual level, but then there's right. also the level of the artifact of, oh, this was created. How was right. it created? What is it doing? Why is this this way? And that's kind of my, my core mission in everything I do is to get people out of their default setting and to cultivate, I mean, I guess it's just, ultimately, it's just awareness. I didn't know that when I started yeah. going down that road, but, you know, 10 years of therapy will do things to you. <laughs> um, and so, and, and the first time I noticed graphic design as a thing that I would call graphic design was actually sort of a, a very similar thing, mm. which was looking at a CD for a British band called Fuzzbox in the 90s. Nice. And I was going through the booklet because I'm a liner node reader, which is no surprise to yeah. anyone who knows me. <laughs> um, and there was a design credit and it said, the way it looks is gorgeous by the designers Republic limited. And I was, and I'm, I'm an ESL person, right? English as a second language. So I learned at that point I'd learned English for maybe five, six years. And I knew enough to know that that's not a proper sentence. Right. And I thought, and I didn't know, it was before the internet. I didn't know what the Designers Republic was. It was a design firm out of Leeds, I think. Yeah. And um, so I thought, this is confusing, but but intriguing. And then I started reading the rest of the legal copy, and there were all kinds of little things hidden. And I think that was the first time that I really recognized that there's a person behind this. I think right. when I was when I saw that comic book with the trapping, I was like, "Oh, this is an object. Like this was, this is a this is not just a thing that I interact with mindlessly." Right. But that CD was the first time where I thought, "Oh, that's not a design studio or an agency or a publisher. That's somebody like me sitting there making decisions yeah. and having fun." Stefan. You talked about your mission being disrupting the status quo. Mm -hmm. What are the seeds of that? I find life bewildering and somewhat anxiety-inducing. And my coping mechanism has always been... Or, well, <laughs> there's a thing in The Simpsons, alcohol, the, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. <laughs> and mine is anxiety, where I, I have this misapprehension that the problem in my life is that there are rules to life and I just can't understand them. Right. And so if I can try to divine the rules and then play by them, then everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. I'm told by my therapist constantly, <laughs> that's not true. That's right. not how it works. But I think... Well, wait, wait, which part is not true? That there are rules to life or that you should play by them? 
that there that there are rules to life. Okay, got it. But there's yeah. some sort of deep underlying rule book that everybody knows. I just don't. Yeah. But I think the I think my mission sort of developed as a like a maladaptation to that mm-hmm. erroneous idea, um, and so it's this thing of can I either figure out can I somehow by hook or crook figure out some rules. Right. Or can I just establish a set of rules of my own and then use that as a framework to exist more peacefully? And I think that's where I've geared my work is to get people into the mindset of, is can I pull back to see what's happening beyond the surface level? Yep. Or better yet, can I just make up fun rules and fun games for stuff that's every day? Like, you know, do all your house plants have names? And if they don't, they should. <laughs> your life will be much more fun if they do. That's true. I, I'm already taking away a key action from this podcast and we're only six minutes into it. <laughs> um, it is... Um, you know, you talked about um, disrupting the status quo as a maladaption because actually it's, you know, it's it's less exhausting just to follow the rules. Um, oh, you know, figure it out and just kind of head down, blend in. Yep. It is, I imagine, quite tiring to have as a, as a deep engine for your purpose a sense that I need to be disruptive. What do you draw upon that allows you to keep being a force of disruption? You know, the, it's interesting to hear it reflected back to me that way. Um, because I don't see, I think fundamentally for myself, I don't set out to be disruptive. Right. I try to create harmony. Like I try to put myself in harmony with the world and I try to create harmony in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times I just fail at it. Um, and so the, where, where does the energy come from? I think is because it doesn't feel optional to me Mm. because I very much long for peace and for connection. Right. And my body and my brain as part of my body is swimming at various degrees of desperation towards that sense of harmony and um, this is the technique that it tends to go for. Yep. So it's not, you know, so it's not a thing of where I get up in the morning and I'm like, well, I'm going to disrupt the status quo. Um, right. It is really more like, man, it didn't, you know, like it worked a little bit yesterday. Maybe it'll work a little bit more today. Yeah. Um, and it has been over the years, the way of disruption has changed for me where I think there was a period of screw it. I can't please any, like people don't seem to like what I'm doing. So I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want to do anyway. Mm -hmm. And that was that sort of, you know, like the angry young man kind of thing. Um, Though it always, you know, never with a real defiance, but always like, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, but do you like it? Um, And now it's more, Hey, I'm just, I'm just doing what I'm doing over here, I'm no threat to you. I'm, I always talk 
about myself, or I, I talk about myself all the time, but I, mean, <laughs> I think of myself um, as a platypus. Mm. You know, I'm weird. I'm a little bit duck. I'm a little bit beaver and I'm just swimming around. Like I'm not a threat to anybody. I'm just trying to make my thing happen. And so, and I'm trying to help other people do the same and just go, Hey, what's, what's going on with you. And so now my disruption is just to go against hustle and to go against performative excellence mm -hmm. and performative power. Like I'm in a bad way. The, the pandemic has messed me up. Right. I'm isolated. I'm not doing well at all. I'm in a tough period in my life. And right. I talk about it openly because I think that that's, a, that that's a helpful disruption that I can contribute right now is to not go out and go like, me doing swell. Yeah. Because that's, you know, because that's sort of the, the Western way of just going out and like you're, you're only, you're only allowed success. Mm -hmm. And I think that's hurtful. And I think that's harmful. As an aside, you do know that platypus have poisonous spurs on their back legs, so they're not totally harmless. <laughs> and they do glow in the dark, which they've just discovered as well, which is a whole other thing about platypi. But to the real essence of the question, um, how do you move beyond performative? Because it is... Uh, asked of us by our society and it is also often part of what it means to be a designer be a creator needing to have a to give people a degree of confidence that you can do a thing for them so i'm wondering how you sit with the power of putting aside the performative act but also st stay in the vulnerability of not being in that performative act it's a fluid thing. Mm. I mean, there are times where I have to go into, I don't, well, I would, I guess I would draw a distinction between a performative competence and an embodied competence. Mm. And I try to stay in the embodied as much as possible right. where I can say, Hey, I don't know what's going to happen with this project right now. I can tell you based on what I've done, here are the things that we've bumped into in the past. Yeah. Here are some things that I see coming down the road for us. Right. Let's talk about it. And I think that to me is the distinction versus going, don't you worry about it. We've got this. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, so sometimes, I mean, I'm not going to go into a new client meeting and go, boy, I'm feeling real unsure about this one. This yeah. is all making me very nervous. I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to stay open and I'm going to stay aware of the situation. And yeah. if they say, for example, if they were to say, well, I'm looking at your portfolio and you've never done this kind of job before, then I would say you're absolutely right. Um, I haven't. And I think we need to talk about that if it's important for you to have somebody who's done this 10 times before. I'm not that person. Um, I may bring it up first. I might say, hey, I noticed that what you want, I don't have in my past. Yeah. yeah. And then we can address it. And I think that's true in any relationship. 
there's um I read I read uh Win Without Pitching, the Blair Endspot thing. Oh, I don't know that. Oh, it's super, super good. And um he talks about a thing that he said at one point that I always remembered is don't be afraid of information. Right. And a lot of my how do I interact with people comes from movies and TV shows because my parents mm-hmm. were also loners. And so I was like, oh, how to be with people. Let me look at TV and movies. <laughs> Not a good approach. I don't recommend it. But right. I remember picking up a thing from a law show that said, um, never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. Right. Which is a really good approach if you're a trial lawyer on TV. Right. It's a lousy way of living. But it I did that terrible. for yeah. decades. And mm-hmm. then I heard, you know, don't be afraid of information. I'm like, oh, oh. I am afraid of information. Because I want to maintain relationships, I want to avoid conflict. Yeah. And now, when I say I don't want to be performative, that goes into that. To say, hey, I don't know the answer to this. I sense that there's something going on. Can we mm. talk about it? Mm. And to do that calmly, and to do it with a real sense of curiosity, yeah, I think that's what I'm talking about. I love that. Stefan, is a ton more here, but I'm going to ask you about the book you've chosen to read for us. What have you picked? I have picked The Salmon of Doubt by Douglas Adams. Which <laughs> oh, is a man, correct... what a great choice. Douglas Adams, what a legend. And, and the first time Douglas Adams has been picked, so I'm so glad you're bringing him to us. Oh, good. Well, I love Douglas, and um, I, uh, I never got to meet him, um, but he was, I discovered him as a teenager, as I think a lot of Boys do, certainly, through The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, The Salmon of Doubt is a collection of writings that were called from his various computers after he passed. And um, it's it's been one of the books that I've returned to a lot. And a lot of it is technology writing. And some of it is now woefully outdated. But um, I what always drew me to him was that he just sees the world in such a different and kind of unusual and quirky way. And that gave me a lot of hope when I was mm. marooned in the German hinterland as a kind, as, as, yeah. as a kind, as a kid, yeah, as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, it always, it invariably makes me feel less alone in my skull that's brilliant. Um, so what pages have you chosen to read for us? I have chosen um, a part of a lecture that he gives about the evolution of humanity and the evolution of communication. And he talks about the ages of sand. <laughs> well, let me introduce you. Stefan Booker, uh, author of one of my favorite books, 344 questions, question mark, um, reading Douglas Adams' The Salmon of Doubt. Stefan, over to you. What is the fourth age of sand? Let me back up for a minute and talk about the way we communicate. Traditionally, we have a bunch of different ways in which we communicate with each other. One way is one-to-one. We talk to each other, have a conversation. Another one is one-to-many, which I'm doing at the moment, or someone could stand up and sing a song, or 
announce we've got to go to war. Then we have many-to-one communication. We have a pretty patchy, clunky, not really working version we call democracy. But in a more primitive state, I would stand up and say, okay, we're going to go to war, and some may shout back, no, we're not. And then we have many-to-many communication in the argument that breaks out afterwards. In this century and the previous century, we modeled one-to-one communications on the telephone, which I assume we're all familiar with. We have one-to-many communication. Boy, do we have an awful lot of that. Broadcasting, publishing, journalism, etc. We get information poured at us from all over the place, and it's completely indiscriminate as to where it might land. It's curious, but we don't have to go very far back in our history until we find that all the information that reached us was relevant to us, and therefore anything that happened, any news, whether it was about something that's actually happened to us in the next house or in the next village, within the boundary or within our horizon, it happened in our world. And if we reacted to it, the world reacted back. It was all relevant to us. So, for example, if somebody had a terrible accident, we could crowd around and really help. Nowadays, because of the plethora of one-to-many communication we have, if a plane crashes in India, we may get terribly anxious about it. But our anxiety doesn't have any impact. We're not very well able to distinguish between a terrible emergency that's happened to somebody a world away and something that's happened to someone around the corner. We can't really distinguish between them anymore, which is why we get terribly upset by something that has happened to somebody in a soap opera that comes out of Hollywood, and maybe less concerned when it happened to our sister. We've all become twisted and disconnected, and it's not surprising that we feel very stressed and alienated in the world, because the world impacts on us, but we don't impact the world. Then there's many to one. We have that, but not very well yet and there's not much of it about. Essentially, our democratic systems are a model of that, and though they're not very good, they will improve dramatically. But the fourth, the many-to-many, we didn't have at all before the coming of the internet, which of course runs on fiber optics. It's communication between us that forms the fourth age of sand. What is it about this that you find comforting and helpful? just it feels like talking to a wise friend Mm -hmm. it feels like being in the presence of somebody with a humane perspective on life somebody who tries to see the world kindly and to help me navigate it and i had some difficulty picking two pages because i was going through it and it's really I respond with Adams to his general soul mm-hmm. verse, rather than a particular page where I'm like, oh, well, that's good stuff, you know? Right. So I wanted to, I picked something that seemed relevant, especially to this moment in history. The man sadly passed long before mm-hmm. our current age of isolation and fragmentation. Yeah. But this seemed to address that some. There's a wonderful piece in the book about him swimming with manta rays. But it's long. It's wonderful. (laughs) There's one where he walks up the side of Kilimanjaro uh, with somebody dressed as a rhinoceros. Wow. 
there are all these wonderful things in there. It's one of my favorite books. Yeah. Um, but this seemed this seemed um, a well-contained thought, and it, and again, it seemed like a good, uh, a good thing to think about in terms of the root of our current um, mm. discontent and disordered dyspepsia and various other disses. <laughs> I'm wondering how you keep your heart open. I seem to have no choice in it. <laughs> Um, which is, which sometimes feels like a curse, but it really isn't. Yeah. Uh, because I know from episodes of depression that it's the, it's not the pain that kills you. It's the numbness. Right. Um, and, uh, I have, I have those patches too. And sometimes it, it sort of comes and goes during the day. A lot of my design work and a lot of my illustration work is to just not to numb myself out, but to go into a zone yeah. where I sort of, I disappear and I just become what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very relaxing, but um, yeah, it seems to be, it seems to be pretty, pretty wide open. There's a, there's a Paul Simon lyric. Oh, it's from Graceland, right? Where, what does it say? Um, God, when I, there's something about the heart, and everybody sees you're blown away, blown apart. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't quite get it together, but it's very no, good. Look at that. I, I, I know, I know, I can't either, but I know exactly <laughs> the, the line you're talking about. I ask Stefan because, you know, in this conversation, you can feel these two rhythms moving through it. One is, you said a few times feeling isolated and alone, yeah. and the other time being kind of cracked open mm-hmm. and and vulnerable at the same time mm-hmm. and um I, I suspect you're speaking truth to lots of people who listen to this who have similar experiences of both of those things coexisting um so you know with with a certain tendency to be alone and to be isolated what have you learned about what it takes to reach out and connect It takes effort, humility, and good humor. <laughs> um, and I'm in I'm in Los Angeles. Yeah. And from talking to people, I've found that it's a particularly difficult city to connect with people mm. because of geographical distance. Also, everybody seems to be forever working on the project that's going to break them. Where it's like, oh yeah, yeah, no, 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 I totally want to get together. But I got to just finish this project because I feel it. This is the one. (laughs) So there's a lot of that going on. And I have, when I would reach out to people to connect, I often would feel, it would trigger my sense of, it would trigger some self-esteem and self-worth issues for me when I wouldn't hear back or it would take forever to schedule just getting together for a coffee um, and I would always see it as a reflection on, oh, I'm not worth their time. Yeah. And I'm shedding that with some difficulty. Yeah. But I just, I'm prioritizing it. I've made it a project to say, I need, I want to create a rich circle of friends. Yeah. And I've recognized that when people are busy, they're just busy. 
They just have yeah. their own path and they have their own struggles. And so I just, I talk to people and I say, hey, let's get together. And then it, sometimes it takes a year to get together for a coffee. All right. And I try to do it with enough people where I can just get together because it's important to me to see people. Yeah. And the other thing is when they have stuff, I show up for it. Or I try right. very hard to show up for it. It's like, are you releasing a book? Let me come to your launch. Are you having a gallery show? Let me put on yeah. my mask and go to it. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's a decision. You know, it's just making it a priority. Shifting focus slightly, how do you choose what to work on? Do I like the people? <laughs> you know, sometimes, right. sometimes, um, it can be that there's a lot of money involved, right? which helps. Often persuasive, yeah. Which is often persuasive. But I also have said no to fairly ridiculous sums of money because I was like, it's not even that I didn't like the people. It's like, eh, this doesn't interest me. Right. Or this feels compromising to me. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, do I like the people and do I feel like I can help? And sometimes right. I like the people and I'm like, yeah, but I can't help you. Yeah. You know, like this isn't, this isn't for me. And then I try to give it to people that I think can help. Um, yeah. It's just that. And the, the nice thing is that because of my platypus nature, poison spikes and all, <laughs> um, the people who find me usually are a good match. Right. It's very rare that I get approached by somebody where I go, why in the world are you talking to me? Right, right. Um, it's usually very clear how we connect. Yeah. And how about for your own projects? Do you have your own projects? Because I suspect you do. I mean, I yeah. think of this book as, you know, 340, 344 questions, and there's just a new expanded edition mm -hmm. coming out from it as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm projecting entirely here, but I know that I have a surfeit of ideas of things that I could do. Mm -hmm. And at, at certain times I'm forced to pick one of them to be the next thing I'm working on. I'm curious to know how you make that decision. Um, it's the ideas that won't let go. Yeah, that's true. Um, an interesting shift has happened because it used to be that it was very clear where I thought, oh yeah, yeah this idea isn't letting go of me. And this is going to connect me to so many things. Right. You know, I'm going to be able to give talks based on this, or I'm going to get work based on this, or I'm going to meet all these people based on this. And a few years ago, I had an epiphany around some things in my personal life where I thought, oh, I thought that my work was going to be the engine of connection. Mm. And it has been in many ways, but the kind of connection that I really want isn't going to come directly out of that. And so now what I work on I really just have to love it. I really yeah. just have, I have to feel that it has some spiritual importance to me. Um, and I'm an atheist, but I mean, this is in, in the sense of, I want to bring something good into the world. Um, I want to make my life and what is in my sphere more peaceful more kind and more gentle. Yeah. And if I can do that, then that's a good project. And at this point, 
Um, I'm doing a lot of music learning because I like puzzles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like getting that emotional avenue. Um, but so so there's there's now a real competition for my time. Right. Where before it was like, well, I got to do something. I know how to design and illustrate. Let me do that. Yeah. And now it has to compete against, oh, I'm learning, you know, extended chords. So it's got to be better than that. It's got to be more fun <laughs> than that. And so that's, that's a really fun. good filter. And, you know, really when, good and yeah. when I'm in the happy position that I have maybe a human in my life that I want to spend a lot of time with, that takes precedent over precedence over everything else yeah so and that's not always been true which is one of my regrets in this life is that a lot of times i've fled into my work yeah and i've neglected people around me or i not even neglected but i didn't allow myself to enjoy them to the degree that i could have that's profound and that is my absolute priority now. And right now I'm, you know, I'm just sort of sitting here. Yeah. Well, music is at the top spot, but um, humans, music, everything else. <laughs> also chocolate. Also chocolate. Yeah. Um, one of the things I loved about the book, the three, four, 244 Questions book, is it is a collaboration like it's not that obvious from the front of the cover, but in fact, you've clearly reached out to people to um, ask them about the questions that matter to them and probably prompted them to go further and deeper with those questions and then designed them in a very intriguing way. I'm, I'm wondering what you've learned about the, the ebb and the flow of collaboration. Oh, can you elaborate on what you mean by ebb and flow? Um, my suspicion and my own experience of collaboration is it is um, um, a dance together as you try and figure out how to work with people. Maybe for the, this book, it was like, just let's, let's have a conversation and give me your questions and then I'm going to make it look fantastic. So it was a little more transactional. But I can't but help feeling that across the wide range of things you've designed for, from record covers to book design to space design, you've had to collaborate with other people to get stuff done. And I'm wondering what you could teach me around what the essence of collaboration might be. I love that question. Thank you for elaborating. I, It's changed for me because I think in the beginning – it was a sparring match, and now it's not even a dance. It's, I don't know what it would be, like maybe a joint hike or something. Right. Um, and what I mean by that is I recently learned about, um, what is it called, covert agreements or covert contracts, where you're in a relationship and you state what you're doing together, but one side makes a covert contract where I'm like, I also really want you to give me personal validation from this, or I also want to get rich off this or something like that, but you don't state it. And so there is a, an imbalance in the collaboration because right. there are, there's dark matter that's right. pulling the gra that's pulling at the gravity of the objects in the relationship. Yeah. 
speaking of space work. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, for example, when I was starting out, it was like, well, I want to help you with the thing that you've asked me to help you with, but I also want to have a portfolio piece because I need this as a way to show the world what I'm all about, right? Yeah. So that you can love me. And now collaboration to me is we are, we are each other's keeper. Mm. It's my job to treat you with respect and help you get to where you want to go. And it's your job to teach me with respect and help me where I want to go, or at least right. not impede me. You know, yeah. it's let's lower the bar. But I think it's as long as that can be the, as long as that can be made explicit and right. addressed as a core goal, it changes everything. Mm. And I, it's changed so much in my work with clients, with collaborators, to say, honestly, here's what I want out of this. Here's right. what I would like to do. Is that what you want? Yeah. And if it isn't, can we meet in the middle? And I know in personal relationships, what I always want to keep in mind is to say, I want us to have a great time. Mm. I want us to have joy together. What makes that happen? Because if I'm doing something, like I'm going to bring my energy into this relationship. Yeah. And if it's not, if what I'm bringing isn't fun, then I'm, then I'm not using my energy correctly. Please tell me because then we'll do something else. Like if I'm stuck, I was recently in traffic with a good friend of mine and we were stuck in traffic and they were getting quite annoyed with the traffic. Mm. And I thought, I don't care. I'm already, I'm happy just to be together yeah. with you and chat. I've already won. Yeah. Yeah. I've already won. Like, I don't care if we're sitting on the, if we're sitting on the freeway or if we're sitting on a couch. Yeah. I'm sorry you're getting frustrated. But to me, like, this is already 95% of what I want. <laughs> That's great. Hey, Stefan. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you for being so open and just um, kind of tender-hearted about this conversation. Um, as a final question for you, is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between you and me? Just to say that I've enjoyed it so much and that it's, it's such a wonderful conversation. You know, it's... This is... We're, we're headed, I think, into... We, we are living in interesting times, and I mm. think we are headed into very interesting times. <laughs> and I think the only sane and viable thing to do right now is to connect ourselves as gently and kindly and deeply to our fellow travelers as we possibly can. Um, because I think, yeah, we're, it's, it's going to get weird and I don't know if it's going to get wonderfully weird or apocalyptically weird or just, just, um, dissonantly weird. Yeah. But I think we need to be, we need to create our own sources of harmony and connection. And you've allowed me to do that with you today. And it just, it means a lot to me. Thank you. 
One moment amongst many that caught my ear was Stefan. He said, I'm an ESL person. English is a second language. And in fact, when I've watched him live stream his monster designs, he often moves between English and German. And I'm guessing, but I think that's one way, this kind of double language or English as a second language, to stay outside of things, to stay slightly awkward. When you become fluent in the flow, you stop noticing. But when you're not in the mainstream, in the flow, you're on the outside looking in. I mean, Stefan talked about this, being on the outside, trying to divine the rules, trying to figure out whether you wanted to play by the rules or not, assuming that you even had them figured out in the first place. I mean, it's a paradox, I think. One part of being a designer is getting to know the details intimately, a deep immersion into a subject. That's what I did with the coaching habit. Like, I knew coaching really well. And one part of a designer is staying removed, being on the outside, noticing patterns and rhythms and deeper structures. That's also what I did in the coaching habit, which is I'm like, how do I break what's normal and not seen? How do I make what's unseen obvious? How do I unweird coaching? So my question for you, are you on the inside or on the outside at the moment? There are so many episodes I wanted to connect to from this, but I'm limiting myself to two. It's the designer's choice, create limitations. So let me point to Mia Birdsong, the sacred and the profane, and also Jessica Abel, how to survive being creative. And by the way, I know some of you have asked me to start numbering our episodes. We're going to do that. We're going to retrospectively go back and number episodes so I can give you a, a number to listen to, not just a name. Um, if you'd like more of Stefan, 344lovesyou.com is the kind of the website to go to. Although the website I quoted earlier about his live stream designing, dailymonster.inc, that might be something fun for you as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support and encouragement and loving the podcast and listening to the podcast and recommending the podcast. We, we're growing our listenership base slowly but surely. Um, and in part that comes through word of mouth, our favorite way to grow. Um, thank you. You're awesome and you're doing great.